Shalom, everyone. Good morning. Shabbat shalom. Uh, years ago, I had the honor of meeting a cousin of a good friend of mine. The, the friend is uh, David Lau. His uncle is, um, and he's ill currently, so we wish him a refuah shlema, a tova, a speedy recovery. That's Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, who's a former chief rabbi of Israel, former chief rabbi of the city of Tel Aviv. Um, so his first cousin is a rabbi named uh, Amichai Laulavi, uh, and uh, Amichai is a very interesting guy, um, had a break with his family because he came out of the closet as a homosexual, still wanted to be very much a rabbi, uh, made his way to the United States to JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, the conservative movement, um, really has uh, initiated a number of really interesting programs, but one in particular, he has a, actually has a program called Shul Lab, which is kind of a pop-up um, laboratory of synagogue experiences uh, in New York City. But the precursor to Shul Lab was a, a program that he developed called Storytelling. And the concept behind Storytelling is um, to be found in the very roots of why we read this very beautiful book. <laughs> Actually, it's not even appropriate to call it a book. It's a scroll. And there's a difference between the two, but we won't go into it this morning. The very origins of why we read the Torah emanate from the return of the Israelites from the destruction of the first temple. Seventy years after the destruction of the first temple, Kurosh HaGadol, Cyrus the Great, um, who was the ruler of the emperor of Persia at the time, Jewish tradition says that he was the grandson of Esther. Just saying. Allowed the Jews to go back. He even provided them with the Bissel Gelt to rebuild the second temple. Nothing fancy, a renovation here and there, just to make it livable. And when the Israelites returned, most of them didn't, interestingly, which is an interesting companion to our moment that we live in today, although the scales are, start, are starting to turn a little bit. A majority of Jews still live outside of the borders of Israel, but that is changing now. Another five years, the largest Jewish population in the world, the majority of Jews living in the world will be living in Israel. They will be Hebrew speakers. So a number of Israelites, not a majority from Babylon, returned back to Israel, led by one of the most important historical characters in Jewish history named Ezra Sofer, Ezra the scribe. And in the fifth chapter of the prophetic work of Nehemiah, of Nehemiah, we read of Ezra reading the scroll to the people on Sukkot. And as the scroll is being read, and we don't know exactly what he read, for the record, but as the scroll is being read, we are told, that they appointed, the term they're using is, mitorgamim, translators. Which tells us a few things. It tells us, number one, that the people who came back from Babylon didn't understand Hebrew. Not surprisingly, they spoke Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonian Empire. It's the language of the Talmud, by the way. They didn't really know Hebrew so well. So they had translators set up to translate it. But as we know, and I've said it many, many times, that every act of translation is an act of interpretation. The people who were set up on this massive bima in the heart of Jerusalem, as Ezra read the scroll, as they translated, 
They were interpreting it and giving life and giving life to the story that was being told. So this morning what I'd like to do is to take a story from the Torah that we read this morning and do something of the same thing. Do a little, Amichai, if you're listening, and I'm sure you're not, <laughs> a little bit of storytelling. This morning, we read of the tenth and final plague against the Egyptians called Makat Pechorot, which was the plague of the firstborn. To understand the context of this plague, we have to understand what gave birth to it and what's the message, the story behind it. So I want to begin at the beginning. And the beginning goes like this. The story of the, uh, of the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt reaches its height of horror, the breaking point wherein it motivates by tradition God to intervene and take the Israelites out of Egypt. It's not the slavery, interestingly. It's not the slavery itself that motivates and forces God, according to the story, to take the Israelites out of Egypt. It's not that. It's the effect of Pharaoh placing and engaging in a program of infanticide, the murder of children, that makes it happen. We read of children being thrown, el that they were being thrown into the river as soon as they were born, in order to carry out Pharaoh's demand that all the Jewish children be put to death. With that, God intervenes, bringing Moses and Aaron into the picture for us, and sets forth after Moses asks that the Israelites be allowed to go worship and be set free. Pharaoh, of course, refuses, and this sets into path what we now know as the ten plague. The first plague, was Makadam. It was the plague of blood. And what was the plague of blood? The plague of blood was that any of the water that the Egyptians took from, be it the Nile River, be it a tributary, a canal taken off the Nile River used for irrigation, be it any of the water jugs or containers that they may have had in their homes, any water that the Egyptians themselves drew from and possessed, it turned to blood. The Nile, of course, was the lifeblood of the Egyptians. Some of the earliest archaeological remains, interestingly, of, uh, of some of the earliest examples of human writing we have, if you use the term writing, whereas symbols become ideas or words, pictures become words, are symbols of the Nile River to be found on vases and other pieces dating back 5,500 5, years ago. The Nile was their life. After the first plague, there's a pause in Pharaoh. But he persists. The cycle goes through and through and through. And finally, we come to this morning, the tenth and final plague. And that is, as I said, the plague of the firstborn whereby the firstborn of all the Egyptians would be put to death, including Pharaoh's own son. And it was with that plague that finally Pharaoh breaks and he sets the Israelites free. Not free from danger, of course. Pharaoh would pursue them, famously so. 
but he would give them permission as if there was permission actually to give at that point. But that's the hubris of Pharaoh. But they go free. The connection between the beginning and the end. There's a story to be found in that that I want to share with you. Because it begins and it ends with children. The water that the Israel, that the Egyptians draw out when it turns to blood should have been an early indication to the Egyptians about what the point of all of this was. Because when the water turned to blood, it was and should have been a clear sign to them that the children that they had thrown into the water those children that had drowned in the Nile River, that vengeance was being seeking for what the Egyptians were trying to destroy. And it would only be, finally, it would only be when the same was done to the Egyptians themselves, that subtly, subtlety clearly failed. That it wasn't enough to show them the price of what they had done to the Israelites. It would only be when it would be done to them Pharaoh would relent only when he would taste the bitterness, the pain of losing a child would he set them free. What does Pharaoh say to Moses at their last meeting? But it wasn't their last meeting. What he thought would be their last meeting? Pharaoh says to him, you will never see my face again. And Moses says, yes, you have spoken true. And a commentator says, but they do see each other again. And the commentator points out by saying, because Pharaoh didn't yet know that he was going to lose a child. And Pharaoh would never be the same person again after that. Moses would never see the face of that man again. He would be different. The Israelites go free. And as the Israelites who set free, the Torah tells us very clearly that the Israelites would not only observe Passover on their exodus from Egypt, baking matzot, eating bitter herbs to commemorate and celebrate their exodus from Egypt, but it says it would be forever, the zikaron, as a memory. The story behind this story, the idea that is embedded deep within it is, is something that Jews understand and feel deeply in our kishkas. It is the idea that we are a people who have a story, who are forever searching, engaged in the battle to find carriers for our story. It is the idea that we have children, not for them merely to go about and live their lives, but to embed and charge our children with a mission to carry this message through their lives and through the lives of their children that the idea of struggle for life, of building freedom, of understanding that while in life we all serve something, we all worship something, it should be God and not materialism or other human beings. That there are things of great value in this life, but nothing greater than the ability to find meaning in your life. That's the story we're telling.
The great New York Times critic, book critic, Anatoly Bayard, famously penned an essay wherein he said that it used to be that our parents wanted nothing from their children except obedience. And now, and now we want everything but obedience. The story the Torah is telling us this morning and every story after that, the story of the Jewish people is looking for our children to be obedient to the story. Yes, to live their life, but to understand that to be a slave to this idea is to be made into a king and a queen. Shabbat Shalom.